Hi, this is Ron Hogan, and you are listening to Life Stories, a Beatrice.com podcast, where I talk to memoir writers about their lives and about the art of writing memoir. I'm here at the NoHo Star Cafe today in New York, and I'm here with Chris Beam, and we're going to talk about her memoir essay, Mother Stranger, which was recently published by The Atavist. So, hi, Chris. Hi, thanks so much for meeting with me. Let's start by talking a little bit about what you're covering in your life through this essay. Well, I'm covering the story of my mom. My mom died a little over three years ago, and I found out through a lawyer I hadn't been in touch with my mom um, at all. I, I ran away from her house when I was 14 years old, and I'm now 40. So I, I you know, I'd always sort of wondered about what would you know, how I would find out that she, you know, when she would die and how I would find out. And it turned out that I found out through a lawyer 53 days after she died. Um, and there had already been a funeral and she had been very sick before she died. And I didn't know that she had been sick and didn't know that she had died. So this, this piece is really an attempt to put together her life as an adult because all my memories, of course, are, are those of a child. And so trying to figure out who she was and why things had gone so terribly wrong and um, my mom was mentally ill, so um, trying to figure out and, and sort of diagnose her, which is really impossible to do um, without her being there, but trying to figure out why she was so crazy and what maybe had happened in her own childhood and, and, and figure it out. So I had to talk to some family uh, that I also hadn't been in touch with and try to put the pieces together. Yeah, you're talking about you're trying to diagnose in retrospect mm -hmm. and, and the difficulties of that, especially since, I mean, you're experiential. Yeah. memory of this is not that oh my mother is mentally ill right exactly it's, what the hell is going on right here? exactly <laughs> and as a kid it's it's um you know anybody that that lives in kind of a crazy house you you have this sort of ephemeral sense that something's wrong but it's also all you know so you know you see what you see on tv but nobody's family looks like the family on tv so you know that that it's not that and you know that it doesn't feel quite right but it's also normal to you so you don't know how to really put the pieces together until long after you've left, and then you look back and you go, "My God, what did I live through? What was that?" And I and I live now. Um, my partner's a psychoanalyst, and psychoanalysts are, are are very are loath to diagnose anyone without really talking to them. So you know, I would pester her with questions like, "Could it be this? Could it be that?" And she'd go, "You know, it's impossible to really to figure this out." So you know, I read a lot of books and talked to a lot of people and, and tried to put it together and in the end I don't know that it's a, a name or a diagnosis that really answers the question because the question is really fundamentally you know why didn't my mom want me you know and that's sort of the ache that's still the old child ache so I'm trying to use an adult perspective to get to some sort of old child pain and, and nothing really ever reaches the corners of that yeah there's a there's a point later in the essay mm -hmm. where you're talking with your brother yeah you know you're both adults now and you're trying to sort this out and you say something like that you're looking for answers and he just wants peace. Yeah. Um, you know, that he just yeah. does not want, you know. He doesn't want to go there. He doesn't want to go there. He has excised this period of his life out of his memory. Right. And it really seems to uh, to resent you for yeah. trying to dredge this up. Yeah, yeah, it's true. He and I took really different paths. I mean, in some ways, we took similar paths after we left. We both left home as kids and didn't look back for a long time. But yet, I think creatively, we were both sort of looking for her. My brother's incredibly imaginative, and he's a painter. And he looks at a lot of dark stuff in his work. 
but he won't, uh, on a literal level, say that he's looking at her or look, looking for her. And yet I think creatively, and this is me making a judgment, this isn't what he would say, but I think that he is creatively looking for her. But he doesn't want to talk about her, doesn't want to think about her, and that's really, that's really his prerogative. And, and for a long time I would push him, you know, and say, like, what do you remember? And is this right? And, and is this the same? And, 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 and he would agree on facts, but he would just push me away and say, stop, I don't want to think about her. Don't talk about her. Like, what's done is done. I want to look at the future. And and so I had to finally surrender and say, look, we're taking different, we're di taking different paths on this. You know, That's, my work is different. I want to look for literal, tangible facts. I think part of what was so hard about my mom is that she was, um, her reality was so altered that I had to. I'm going back looking for tangible reality, mm -hmm. and my brother doesn't want to do it. Right, and of course, for your your mother's reality, a lot of this goes back to before you were even born, right. the, the discoveries you made about right. her childhood. Right, and that was, I think, one of the most useful things. And, you know, part of this is there are so many secrets. I mean, I think in any family there are so many secrets. And the person that I talked to that told me about my mother's abuse, the, the, there was some really devastating childhood sexual abuse um, that went on repeatedly, like daily, um, from the time my mom was about five till she was 12. And that kind of deep trauma can fragment a person really fundamentally. But this person didn't want me to reveal who she is. And yet she's close enough that I, that I trust her. Um, and she was also assaulted by this grandfather. The grandfather was the one that raped my mom. And yet that was such a frustrating point in the piece because I was, I wanted to tell the truth somewhere. I wanted to say, okay, this is, this is what happened and this is who's saying it. And, and, and yet I had to figure out, you know, whose, whose story is, is this to tell? You know, where, where, which parts are mine and which parts are yours and, and which parts can I, can I own, you know? And so there were parts that my brother didn't want me to tell and there were parts that this person that told me about my mom didn't want me to tell. So there was a lot of like carving away. Um, and I think that that's true in any memoir, you know, figuring out who you're protecting and what's yours and what isn't. It's very complicated work, you know? And, you know, one of the footnotes in the essay, you talk about how at the point where you turn 14 and you leave your mother, yeah. you're, although you moved in with your father, yeah, mm -hmm. um, you know, he actually drops out of the story because, you know, he did not want to be a part of the memoir. Yeah. And that is probably the most painful, currently painful element um, because... I had given him a version to read wherein he's a more present character. And to me, that's the more honest version of the story. And he was very angry. He's angry that I, that I wrote the book at all. He, he thinks that I should uh, have not published this at all. He thinks that it brings, I, I don't want to speak for him exactly, but I, my sense is that he thinks this brings shame and embarrassment, he says, to me. Mm -hmm. And, and he, he said a lot of angry, hurtful things. And yet, this is my story and my journey. So at some point, I had to um, publish it anyway. But you know, I had to decide whether I respect would respect his wishes and take him out. He said, "I want, I don't want to be any part of this story." So I took him out. But there are a lot of things that that he did and that he's a part of that would have made the story for me more complete. But because he's a part of my life. And because I want him to be part of my life, even though we go through continual emotional gymnastics, I decided to 
exercise him and, and honor his wishes. I don't know that that repaired our personal relationship. I think he's still very upset that the, the, that I that I published this at all, and I, and I think that leaving him out leaves some questions, and I'm not sure that the book is as complete as I'd like it to be. But you know, I felt like you know I'd never really done memoir before. I think in my other two books, I was even the fiction book, I was writing around the around family dynamics because this has been such a core question for me my whole life, what happened with my mom, that it was surprising to me that even in this book where I dealt with it directly, I still had to write around certain things. How did it turn out to be the length that it is? Because and we should clarify for, for people listening that this is, essentially it's a long essay. Yeah. Published in ebook form. Yeah. And why was it like that this was how long the story was rather than trying to do like a book length? Manuscript version. I was really interested in the atavist format, and I and I love the atavist stories. I love what they're doing, and I was excited to work with them. And I think this this um, format this, between the length of say a long magazine story and uh, and book length, I think there's there's really there's not a lot of formats for, for publishing that length, right? So I was excited to, to to try it out, to try that, to try writing to that length. Mm-hmm. I was excited by what they were doing with the visual elements, with incorporating video and um, imagery and sound and working with a creative team, because I've always worked so alone with my writing. So I wanted to try publishing with the Atavist to see what that would mean. And that would mean writing to a specific length, say about 50 to 70 written pages, mm-hmm. as opposed to a full length, you know, 250, 350 page book. And that doesn't mean that I won't necessarily write this into a fuller length memoir. There's certainly more to be had. I mean, I've written a lot more than this, but I wrote it to the, the atavist specifications, which is about this this length. But I may well turn it into a longer piece. I also wanted to emotionally test it, you know, to see how it would feel. This was such vulnerable material. I wasn't sure what it would feel like to go out there just with this this amount, you know, what the reaction would be, how my heart would feel. You know, all of that. I'd never written anything so personal before. So I wanted to try it in kind of a smaller scale. And, and the response has been good. And a lot of people have written written to me. And I feel um, feel encouraged. So uh, I may well open it to a larger to a larger piece. As a me- memoiristic essay, it has a very specific focus. I mean, right. it seems like there is probably a lot going on in your life yeah. over the years. That, yeah, that I skipped. That you skipped. Yeah, exactly. I could do a whole lot more. And there's a lot of really interesting stuff that I'd like to do in a longer piece um, that I didn't get to get to in here. For example, finding the connection to William Faulkner was, is really interesting, and I think in a book-length work, you could really I could really explore that, because a lot of the themes that Faulkner himself deals with can really be explored and played with in a longer form, um, creatively, I think could be very exciting. So, I'd love to do that. Insisted too that, you know, there's a revelation at the center yeah. of the essay, yeah. and we'll, we'll talk around it, I okay, guess, for great. the purposes of yeah. this, po- this podcast. But one of the things that I found interesting about the essay is that, you know, once that revelation occurs, yeah. you know, it does. Th- your memoir doesn't then suddenly become about that. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's not anything that that there are really. I mean, I suppose there are some hints towards it yeah. before it comes, and then afterwards rather than sort of like consciously grappling with this and grappling with other people's you know 
perspectives on what it is. Mm -hmm. It's something you tackle indirectly through what's through your confrontations with, you know, your immediate family and your, you know, the family that your mother remarried into. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting because I think when somebody's endured trauma, either my mother or me or or really anyone, but like looking specifically at this case, my mom endured specific trauma and then I endured trauma by what she did to me and just the backsplash of what she had experienced. And so when anybody's gone through that, you go back looking for what's the cause? Why did this happen? Where where's the where's the root from whence this sprung? And when you find that, you look at you you want there to be a big aha. You want there to be a big Whew, I got it. Now I have the answer. Now I'm free. Now I can run to the hills and be happy again. And the experience is not that at all. The experience is, oh, this answers something. And there's some relief. But it doesn't answer everything. Because the reality, the lived reality, was days and months and years of subsequent suffering. And that's what's really got to be reconciled through days and months and years of healing. So when we get to the aha in the essay, I couldn't deal with it with a with a, a revelatory sum up. It had to be managed, I felt, through the writing with a kind of ripple effect, which is how I lived it. There's a, another section in the footnotes yeah. um, where you're talking about trying to sort through your memories and try to figure out you know your mother's past yeah. and the way that she narrated her past yeah and you talk about like the the psychoanalytic theories yeah. about memory yeah and the idea that it's not so much that memories are repressed but that Memories are because there's like experiential memory, yeah. and there's memory that's been embodied into language. Right. And it's like if we don't have the words yeah. to talk about something that we've experienced, yeah. it's almost as if that memory gets bracketed off. Yeah, exactly. That was kind of a big aha moment for me because one of the one of the main things in my mom's life was that she always said, you know, I have no memory from age 6 to 12. It's just one big black wall. And yet then my mother also would split into these alternate personalities, these crazy states where she would remember moments from those times. And then and she would express them in these terrifying ways. And then after that, she wouldn't remember that she had done that. So there were these odd pockets of memory, non-memory going on. So... I talked to a bunch of memory experts, and they all had different things to say. One said, very specifically, you know, the, the memory, um, repressed memory theory, that was all, that was all done away with in the 90s, because, you know, there was all this repressed memory stuff going on, all this drama, that said that um, people were confessing uh, repressed memories left and right. There were all these repressed memories that said that people had been in cults, and that they'd been abused by all these different people, and then that was debunked. And it was proven to be the therapists had brainwashed their clients. And this, it all kind of got extreme for a minute. And so everyone got freaked out. The psychological communities got freaked out and, and sort of pulled back on their theories about repressed memory. And said, okay, 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 repressed memories don't really exist. We, we made some errors. And one of the theorists that I talked to said, 
repressed memories don't really exist. There's no way we do remember them. There's no way that, that you can forget a trauma, especially a very deep trauma. And then another one said, look, it happens all the time. You know, what happened in the 90s was a lot of, a lot of bad press, essentially. And when a, a real trauma, a, a sexual trauma, physical trauma, a war trauma happens, we do forget it. It's one of our coping mechanisms. It's what, what the body does. It's what the psyche does. And the body and psyche are intertwined. And then, you know, I was talking with my partner, and she said, you know, the, the, the two, those two, I said, how do I reconcile these two theories? And she said, they're not so far apart at all. She said, you know, your mother, your mother may not have remembered on a conscious level or on a level enough to verbalize what had happened to her, but she certainly was living in reaction to what had happened to her. So, therefore, she remembered it. We say that somebody doesn't remember it when it's not encoded in language. When you can't speak about it, we say that they don't remember it. But they're remembering it because they're living it. They're, li they're reacting to it in all kinds of ways. So that's a form of memory. Um, so in, in, a, in some ways, both of those theories are right, that we remember and we don't remember at once. So that was, yeah. I mean, we go through this on a experiential level every day. I mean, there are all yeah. sorts of things that we do not comprehend. Right, exactly. That we basically agree not to talk about. Exactly. And yet those things still have an impact on us. Right, exactly. And we remem remember them. I mean, what are we talking about when we talk about memory? Kind right. of, you know? We, exactly. Right. I mean, even if you don't know, for example, how the the banks collapsed in 2008. Right. And who really does know that? And, if, and, you know, even if you don't understand the mechanics of that... It still has an impact on you. You're yeah. still living with that wor right. in that world. And you're still going to be scared. Mm -hmm. You're still going to be reactive to that experience, mm -hmm. whether you can talk about it or not. Yeah. And especially when things are happening to children who don't have the kind of expressive language that adults have, to expect them to, when they become adults, explain what has happened. They just don't have it. They may have the bodily memory. They may be able to express fear or... Or sadness or terror or any of the other things, but they can't necessarily relay what happened in a narrative form. So therefore we say they don't remember it. But are they reacting to it? Are they reacting to touch in a particular way? Are they reacting to intimacy in a particular way? That's all memory. Because this is treated in a, in a side note or a footnote in the essay, it actually gives me an opportunity to talk about, yeah. you know, when we're talking about the ways that this was published in the Atavism, Yeah. The electronic format gives you an opportunity to do a lot of interesting digressions, yeah. not just with material that doesn't fit the, the, the through line, yeah. but also with visual or audio evidence of yeah, material. Yeah, exactly. And that was really, <laughs> that was really fun. One of the, one of the things that, that one of the producers was really nervous about showing me was, a theory that I played with in the back of my mind for so many years was that my mom had multiple personality disorder. And I thought, I can't ever say that because of Sybil. You know, that's so embarrassing and so shameful. And, you know, who has that? And that, got de that one got debunked in the, you know, the 70s and 80s. That's such a, that's so shameful. And everyone knows that doesn't really exist because Sybil didn't really exist. And, and then, so I wrote a little bit about that um, because my mom certainly exhibited the signs of that, you know, where she switched and then she didn't remember who she was. But so I didn't want to ever say that, and so I wrote about this in the essay. And so one of the producers stuck in a video clip of Sally Fields playing in the movie Sybil, where she's screaming. It's ridiculous where she's screaming and spinning around on the on the children's playground. And she thought I would feel um, maybe a little bit like you know ashamed of that or something. But it's so hilarious because it's exactly the kind of shame that I feel. And so 
you can do that kind of thing in this format. You can stick in little video clips and you can you can digress about the psychoanalytic stuff. So the readers that don't want that can skip can skip it. But those that wanna jump into that kind of heady, meaty gobbledygook can. <laughs> yeah, so there's like a timeline yeah. attached to it that yeah. because your memories are going back and yeah. forth, you know, this timeline yeah, people can like click on links and it will actually give them like a sort of, a, a th like we said before, a through line. Yeah, like of a chronology how, yeah. that's there, yeah. Yeah, that was, that was really, it was fun to work with the team too, again, because I've done some radio work and that's always fun to work with producers who, who think in a different kind of way. I mean, they think in a much more audio way and this was great because they, these, this group got in a visual way that I don't necessarily think in, and so they they were able to incorporate all kinds of elements that I hadn't even imagined. So it was really an exciting process. Yeah, we we touched a little bit on this earlier, but now that you have done this and you've you've grappled with this facet of your experience, I guess how geared up are you to tell more of, of your story? You know, I'm finishing a, a book right now about foster care. It's a big, big nonfiction book that's coming out next year with Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. And so right now I'm geared up for that. Like that's a big monster of a book that I've been working on for like the last five years. Um, so my head is all wrapped into that. But after that's done, I think I'd be pretty ready. I think I'm kind of excited to go back into this and really dive into the pockets that I um, skimmed over in this version and really play with some of the lyrical elements that I had to cut short and, you know, just really like let it grow to its natural size. So, yeah, I think I'd be ready to do it. But right now I've got to finish this other book and then so it's giving me a break, a psychic break that I need. Great. Well, that seems like a great place to end the conversation. My guest today on Life Stories has been Chris Bean, the essay, uh, memoir, and ebook app. We're not really sure what the vocabulary is for it yet. It's a, it's a brave new world of technology, but it is called Mother Stranger and it is available through the Atavist and you can read it on iPad and iPhone. And Kindle mm -hmm. and Banook and pretty much anything electronic you can, you can read it. Great. So it is there. It has the, the essay and all sorts of other components to it as well. And I hope that you will check it out. And I hope that you'll check out Life Stories on Beatrice.com again in the near future. Thank you for listening.